truth is truth, whether it be theological truth or scientific truth, and error is error in either realm as well. As we saw last week, there are false teachers of theology, and most will acknowledge even scientists can be wrong. Our job is to sort out truth from error wherever we find it. And while a theologian is no doubt better able to judge the validity of theology and a scientist the validity of science, neither should take a hands-off policy with regard to the other because truth in the spiritual realm and truth in the natural realm will never be in conflict. Because God is the author of both. So if we find a conflict between the Bible and science, we have to examine them both to make sure our understanding of the revealed word is correct and our interpretation of facts in the created world is correct. Now, this isn't easy. And it doesn't come Quickly, And just about the time we think we've got it all resolved, we find something that challenges an assumption that we made or a conclusion we reached. So we must always remain open to the possibility of error in our thinking and continue to seek after the truth, no matter how embarrassing it might prove to be or what it might cost us. Personally, for years, I believed and taught that the only way to interpret the Genesis account of creation was to insist that God created the world and everything in it in six 24-hour periods, and that he had done so merely thousands of years ago. I embraced what was known as scientific creationism and bought everything they were selling, thinking it was the only way to be faithful to the biblical record. I accepted what they claimed to be scientific evidence that supported what they claimed to be the only way to take the Bible literally. I not only taught it from the pulpit, I taught it to my kids. I was very proud when Nikki wrote a response on the visitor's log at Dinosaur National Monument that challenged the timeline that accompanied the bones on display. And when Matt mumbled under his breath, bunch of bull, bunch of bull, as we left a presentation on the creation of the universe and the Big Bang, at uh, the Science Center. I was proud of my kids. They reflected what I thought and what I had taught. But what I had been led to believe was later challenged by a falconer friend who had become a Christian after spending seven years alone in the jungle studying the Philippine monkey-eating eagle and reading the Bible. 
when I sought to reaffirm what I thought to be the truth, I found books written by a conservative, Bible-believing Christian scientist who disagreed with what the scientific creationists were teaching. After considerable study, I eventually had to admit that it wasn't necessary to believe that God created the world in six days, that the language of Genesis left open the possibility of interpreting the six days as six periods of undefined time. Now, that's not to say that God couldn't have created the world and everything in it in six literal days. He could do it in six seconds if he wanted to. I just no longer found it necessary to believe that's the way he did it. Now, I remained and still remain absolutely convinced that we cannot accept an evolutionary view that reduces mankind to nothing more than a highly evolved animal or a view of geological history that excludes the possibility of God's activity in the past or in the future. And the last time I preached through Second Peter, I outlined two competing views of geology. Uniformitarianism, which was held by nearly all geologists at the time, and catastrophism, which was held to be the only acceptable view for Bible-believing Christians. Now, the classical view of uniformitarianism is that the present is the key to understanding the past, that the Earth's features have been shaped by the same geological processes that can be observed in the present, acting gradually over an immense period of time. Catastrophism holds that the earth has largely been shaped by sudden, short-lived, violent events, possibly worldwide in nature. In light of the biblical record of the flood, I trust you can see why a catastrophic view of earth's history would be preferable to a strict uniformitarian view. Thus, my willingness to publicly disagree with the scientific consensus of the day. That was then. But as I reviewed the current status of geological thinking, I discovered that most geologists today hold to what is called neo-catastrophism, a view that the Earth's history is a slow, gradual story, punctuated by occasional natural catastrophic events that have affected the earth and its inhabitants. So there's no longer a need to take a stand in a battle that's no longer being fought and for which most of us are ill-equipped. In fact, for a theologian to pretend to be a scientist or a geologist is fraught with danger. And demanding that a particular view of science or geology is the only one a Christian can hold can lead to a rejection of the biblical record and stand in the way of someone accepting Christ. Having said that, it is essential 
that we challenge any view that rules out divine intervention in history. And it appears that attempts at doing so are nothing new. We even find it in our text for today. We're in 2 Peter, the third chapter. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter said in the last days, men would insist that all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation, which sounds a lot like uniformitarianism. But since he wrote this nearly 2,000 years ago, I guess we shouldn't take modern geological theories as a sign that we are just now beginning to live in the last days. Besides, the biblical concept of the last days isn't limited to a few days or years or even centuries before Christ returns. The last days refers to the last period of history, the time between Jesus' ascension and his return. We know this to be the case because Peter declared in his sermon recorded in the second chapter of Acts that the miraculous events witnessed on the day of Pentecost gave evidence that the long-prophesied last days had begun. And, contrary to what we hear from false prophets, the primary issue of the last days isn't when Jesus is coming back, but whether or not he's coming back. And that's what Peter is addressing in our text for today. He begins with the last days Questioned. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. It had been 35 years since Jesus ascended, and he hadn't come back. So the Christians were being mocked for their faith. Some were scoffing, mocking the Christians. You said he was the Messiah, the Savior of mankind, that he went to heaven to get a few details worked out. Well, where is he? Some of your apostles have died already, and this Jesus is nowhere in sight. In addition to that, the scoffers reasoned that a second coming with angels shouting, the sky parting, the dead rising, and the earth burning just couldn't happen. It didn't fit into the natural order of things. Since the days of Abraham and Moses and all of recorded history, nothing like a second coming had ever happened. They argued that everything had always been the same and would therefore always be the same. There just wasn't room for a miraculous, earth-shaking event. Their thinking wasn't too far off from today's scientific thinking that everything can be explained without the need of a God or supernatural Intervention. Now, I realize that science couldn't accomplish anything if every time a question was raised that couldn't be readily answered, the default position was that God alone knows or that he did it. But why would anyone completely rule out the possibility of divine action or intervention? Is it because scientific observation demands it? Absolutely not. Peter says it's because of lusts that men fabricate a system that excludes God. You see, if man is alone, then he's not responsible to a creator and sustainer, to God. He can live and do as he pleases. His will is the highest will, and whatever he wants and can do is fine because he answers to no one. The unspoken impetus is, let's cut God out. Let's come of age. Let's reason God out of existence, and then we can do our own thing. In fact, the real reason men become atheists is not because they've objectively examined the evidence and found it lacking. You know, there's much more evidence to support the fact that Jesus came to earth and is who he said he is than there is to support the fact that George Washington was for real. Now, no one doubts that George Washington existed, even though we can't see or touch or hear him. Because it doesn't make any difference in our life. But if a man accepts the evidence concerning Jesus, then everything in his life must change. So when a man scoffs at the idea of Jesus coming back, you can be sure he doesn't want him to come back. He doesn't want to believe it. 
He doesn't want a judgment day coming. He wants to go on following his lusts. So Peter says he lets something escape his notice. He closes his eyes to something very obvious because the last days have been confirmed. Verses 5 through 7 again. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Peter says, in effect, wait a minute, wait a minute. You say everything continues the same as it always has, that natural law can't be broken, That there's no evidence that the Son of God will act in history in a powerful, earth-shaking way that God hasn't acted in the past? Well, look again. God has certainly been involved in our history. And His involvement in our history confirms His involvement in our future. It must have escaped your notice. That it was by the Word of God that the heavens came into existence. They did not just happen somewhere, somehow, no matter how scientific you might be, you've got to get back to a first cause. Even atheistic evolutionists have to have gaseous bodies to begin with, and they can't explain where they came from. But we can. God is the author of everything. Peter says God is behind it all. By his word, the heavens existed long ago. And God formed the earth out of water. The Genesis account tells us that God separated the waters from the waters. And then let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and the dry land appeared. So originally God formed the earth out of water. But that wasn't the end of his involvement with the earth, his direct participation in geological events. After he created the earth and man, he became sorry he had ever made man and planned to destroy what he had created. But because of Noah, God decided not to destroy everything. Instead, he started over. And recreated, reformed the earth with a flood. Now, the flood wasn't just a 40-day rain shower. The Bible says the fountains of the deep opened up and the windows of heaven were opened. The earth, or at the very least the part of it inhabited by man, went through a catastrophic upheaval. And the face of the earth was changed. This may explain the mountains and valleys and fossils and strata that cannot be explained by currently observable activity in nature. That's not to suggest we should insist that everything we see in the topography of Earth is the result of the flood. But when Peter says the Earth was formed out of water and by water, he's talking about two separate events. 
He's saying God not only originally created dry land by separating it from the waters, but that he also reformed it by the action of water. The point he's making is that nature itself, if we have eyes to see, demonstrates that God can and does act in history. That he's not off somewhere isolated from our world system. He's not shut out. He's not excluded by natural law. He established it for the day-to-day running of our world, but he is not limited by it. God is preserving our world by natural law, but he's not bound by it. He can do whatever he wants to do. He can break into the natural order of our world any time he chooses. That means Jesus can come back whenever he wants to. And no law of nature can stop him. In fact, this world is being preserved by natural law for supernatural judgment. God has ordained natural laws to hold the world together until Jesus returns for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. So Peter's word to mockers and scoffers is, don't think you can rule out God by imposing physical limitations on him. Physical laws are simply in effect to preserve this world until Jesus comes again. But if these are the last days, why hasn't he come back? Why have the last days been extended so long? Well, Peter answers that next. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter says, before you jump to any conclusions, remember this. God is eternal. So time is of no consequence to him. We think of everything in time segments because everything in our life has a beginning and an end. And we are therefore limited by time. But God isn't. Time is nothing to him. In fact, Peter says with him, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So while it may seem to us that there's been an awfully long time since Jesus was here, 2,000 years, in fact, as God sees it, it's only been a couple of days. Besides that, Peter points out that God is purposely delaying the second coming. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish, not even the scoffers and mockers. Peter says God isn't slow about the promised return of his son. He's simply being patient. 
When Jesus returns, that's it. And all who have rejected his son will be condemned. But God doesn't want to condemn anyone. He doesn't want to send anyone to hell. He loves us too much for that. So he's waiting. He sent his son to save us and is now waiting for someone else to repent. How long will he wait? We don't know. But we do know he won't wait forever. Someday he is going to come back. And he's already waited a long time. So his patience may be close to its end. And if you haven't repented, now is the time to do so. Come while the Savior is waiting and before it's too late.